over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. We're going to jump into the book of Leviticus. Remember, the Pentateuch is a whole. Uh, We tend to think of this as five books, but I want you to keep in mind this is a unit of thought. In some respects, we might even say it's one book. The way it's written, the continuity of it, the subject matter, and Leviticus is a trip up for a lot of men and women when we read through the first five books, as we call them. It's only 27 chapters. It's the shortest of the Pentateuch uh, uh, literature, and even at that, it's something that we kind of approach with, ah, do I have to read this if I'm reading through the Bible? Uh, Can I skip through it real quickly? Hopefully, in a few minutes, uh, that might change a little bit your attitude. Let's read together Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, and I want you to see what Moses, who I am arguing is the author of this corpus of literature called the Pentateuch, and note especially when he talks about the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Let's read this together aloud. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Keep in mind from the Exodus, the calling of Moses, Moses was given instruction, right? Remember the who am I? How can I go? What if they don't? Who, who are you? Remember all that back and forth? And eventually God tells them, okay, Aaron can go with you. And so we envision in most of these encounters, Aaron and Moses side by side. And uh, there are some scholars that believe Aaron did all the talking. It's, a, it's an unknown, but there was that reticence early on in Moses' ministry to step forward and lead the people out of Egypt, to lead them out of slavery. But all that to say, the, the objective of this was, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. Think of that language in antiquity. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're going to be different than all the people around you. There's not going to be one king running a people group. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're not going to be one of many nations. You're going to be a holy nation, a set-apart nation. And so these conditional clauses, if then, if you do this, I will do this. And the reason I wanted to read those two verses are the emphasis on a holy nation. As we continue, as we're studying in in Exodus 19, where Moses goes up to Sinai, he gets the Ten Commandments, he comes back down. We're going to have a tabernacle complex that's going to be built the codes of this tabernacle complex and the corpus of what's called the law are going to be given to Moses over time. So when you think of the 40 days and 40 nights, it didn't take 40 days and 40 nights to carve out two tablets. Remember, we've talked about those two tablets. It wasn't commandment 1 to 5 and 6 to 10. It was what? It was a copy, 1 to 10, 1 to 10, because one went in the Ark of the Covenant. 
And if you recall the Steven Spielberg movie, not that you should or shouldn't watch it, but the Ark of the Covenant representation, although stylistically, I would argue, was about the right size. So that box isn't all that big. And so that tablet couldn't have been all that big to go in there along with manna and Aaron's staff and some other things that were stored in that ark that were not opened. So there had to be a copy uh, for the priest to use, to utilize, to teach Israel about this. Um, in chapter 11 of the book, we, are, we find Israel grumbling again. This is in Exodus. They're grumbling again at an area called Tibera, which is a Hebrew word for fire. And this is where some of the fringe people are consumed by fire because of their sin. And this is where they lament about, when we were in Egypt, we had leeks and onions and garlic. I mean, Mediterranean diet. We had all these things freely. And all we got now is what? This manna. And if you're old enough to remember some of the Christian songs making fun of manna, manicotti, manna burgers, whatever. Uh, you get sick and tired of it. If you roasted it, if you ate it raw, if you, you know, whatever. You got sick and tired of eating manna. I, I, when I was with uh, the university with Moody, uh, we would go down to the student dining room, SDR. And if you go down to the SDR the first time as a freshman or a person, it's great. You love the food. I mean, the variety is endless. What happened after about six weeks? You can't stand going to the cafeteria. You want to go somewhere else. Think about having one item on the menu, manna. That's all you get. So we would be the same way. Man, I used to go to Five Guys and Sperry's and, you know, uh, Bonefish Grill, whatever. I used to go all these places, and now all I got is manna. So by Numbers 11, we're going to hear this loud and clear. We'll see that in the future. The title of the book is interesting. It will come as no surprise to you. It's not the title of your English Bible. It's not called Leviticus. In Hebrew, the title is And He Called. It's one word. It's the first word in Leviticus 1, chapter 1. And the reason I'm pointing this out is, is to show the continuity of the Pentateuch as a body, as a book, as opposed to five, we might think of five chapters as opposed to five books. Um, your English version, again, we go back to Latin, to the Vulgate, to the Greek. These languages kind of coalesce, and we get the word Liberia, Liberia, meaning meaning. Leviticus, Leviticus being a priesthood, an order, um, and this is a description then of the priestly duties. But the Old Testament, the, the technical title of the book is And He Called. Dr. Alan Ross, who um, I, I don't like uh, pushing or selling or promoting books that you're never going to read, so unless you're a, a deep diver, this is not a book for you, and I don't mean that critically, it's just not a book you would buy. But Holiness to the Lord, Dr. Alan Ross's book on Leviticus, I spent a year doing a devotion. I started out doing my Bible reading like we all do, and then you know, about January 3rd, I get tired, right? So uh, anyway, I jump into Leviticus, and I do this each year. I pick a book that's intimidating, or a book that I need to review, or a book that I don't like. I'm going to tell you, I, I, mean, I, I used to not like Ecclesiastes. I didn't understand it. And I started reading it for a month, and I spent three years in Ecclesiastes. became one of my favorite books. So if that's true of a book, it's true of Leviticus. I spent a year, and Ross's guide was very helpful to me. Now, this again, this is like a graduate-level type textbook. It's not an easy read, so it's, it's not, if it's not your wheelhouse, that's fine. But let me read you, and I think we have this on the screen, one of Dr. Ross's quotes. He was a professor of mine who wore me out but I love him to death nonetheless. Um, 
Actually, I'm just going to read this part. He, he implies that the title of the book would be, and the, technically it's, and he called. Ross expands it. And the Lord called to Moses saying. So the one word, and he called for, you know, you, you, when you say, we, we use the phrase, you is understood. If I, if I say something, okay, you, you understand. When they heard that phrase, and he called, what they were hearing was, and the Lord called to Moses. I'm belaboring this a little bit because I want to show you what's going to happen in this book called Leviticus. The character and the divine authority of the book are unusual. In fact, in many rabbinic schools, uh, the first thing a boy learns to read is Leviticus. Seems odd to us, but if we understand the context. Think of this as a series of divine lectures, of divine presentations. Because God is calling to Moses, telling him something. So we're to pay attention to this. Again, I've stressed if you use the New American Standard Bible, some of the the ways we translate Lord and God and Yahweh and Elohim and Adonai. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, uh, shows up 28 times in the book of Leviticus. So you're seeing this repetition. It's pretty obvious as a casual reader. Five of those times it included Aaron. So sometimes when they're standing there and he's talking before Pharaoh or talking to the people, you got to wonder, is Moses a couple of feet back and Aaron a couple of feet forward? Are they side by side? Or are they already, you know, co, uh, they've agreed what they're going to talk about. God's told them, obviously. And so Aaron's the one who's the mouthpiece. I don't know. It's a bit of a mystery. But five of the times, 28 times, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron is included in the text. If you use the ESV or the NIV, if that's your preferred Bible, it'll say the Lord spoke or the Lord said the same emphasis. Now, the tribe of Levi, interestingly, it only occurs one time in the book of Leviticus. So Aaron is the high priest. From the tribe of Levite will come the Levitical priesthood, right? So Aaron's the big guy. He's the one with the ephod and the stones and the urim and the purim. He's the main guy. And from him, the descendants of Levi will be the ones, the priests, who will carry this whole thing forward. If you're from a Catholic background, as am I, uh, a lot of the language of the priesthood is taken from Leviticus. A lot of the language and the imagery of the priest's role is taken from the book of Leviticus, this idea of the priest. But God said to Moses, a kingdom of priests, not a priesthood. And that, of course, will be quite settled when you come to the book of Hebrews. The one time it's mentioned, if you're a note taker and want to capture this type of data, it's chapter 25, 32 is the only time the tribe of Levi is mentioned. Again, it's the continuation of Exodus. If Exodus was redemption from slavery and consecration to Nobody remembers. See, she's a better teacher than me. Redemption from slavery, consecration to worship. That's the theme of the book of Exodus. Redemption from slavery. That was literal slavery in Egypt and literal slavery to sin. We've got to redeem you from slavery and then consecrate you, set you apart to worship. And God's going to strip every prop away from them in the wilderness except water, manna, and the cloud. Water, man, and me. That's going to be all they have to get rid of the idolatry. Redemption from slavery, consecration to worship. So Leviticus then logically would be how to worship. If we're going to get you out of slavery, sin, 
and the idolatry of Egypt, and we're going to consecrate you, set you apart for worship. How do we then worship? Great question, and that's exactly where the book of Leviticus goes. Leviticus is written to the priest primarily, but you're reading it. I'm reading it. Think of the seven interactions Jesus has with individuals. One of the unique parts of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, compared to the outlier John, John has these intimate conversations that the other gospels don't, don't have. So when Jesus is talking to uh, Nicodemus in chapter 3, or when he's talking to the blind man in chapter 9 or whatever, we've got this intimate dialogue between Jesus Christ and a person. And what are we doing? In a sense, we're listening in, right? It's recorded. So when Israel was given the law, and the law is the Torah, this first five books, five chapters of the Pentateuch, they're listening in. The priests are getting this heavy-duty, detailed, ornate instruction on how to worship Yahweh Elohim, but all the lay people are listening in. Make sense? So don't, don't differentiate the book going, oh, that's just for the, the law or just for the priesthood. Yes, but all the lay men and women were hearing this information as well. Ross writes, one idea informs all this vast and detailed cultic law. Let me stop for a second and define cultic. When you and I hear the word cult, we run to cults that are not Christian. Cultic, when you speak of it in the Old Testament terms, is a form of, it's a system of worship. It's how cultic worship for Yahweh Elohim meant you had to follow the Torah. Make sense? That's what he means when he uses the word cultic. All this vast and detailed cultic law and gives it a real glory even apart from its prophetic significance. Holiness. Holiness is its goal. Holiness is its character. The Lord is holy. His sanctuary is holy. The vessels are holy. The garments of the priest are holy. The sacrifices are most holy to the Lord. And all who approach him whose name is holy, whether the priest who minister or the people who worship must themselves be holy. It is as if throughout Israel's holy place was the earthly echo that the seraphic, the seraphim, the seraphic song in the courts above that never ceases to proclaim holy, holy, holy. We know that too. Holy, holy, holy Lord. We sing songs, hymnology, holy, 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 the Trinitarian function. So to facilitate worship, if you're redeeming you out of slavery that consecrates you to worship, then how do we worship? If you grew up in the Egyptian system, you wouldn't know about what Leviticus is going to tell you. Even if you were a pretty pious Jew, you would have forgotten a lot of this, which is why the Lord commands Moses to write down. To facilitate this was precise and very detailed in its procedures. Uh, most of you know Cindy's a realtor, and she goes to classes all the time, and she, she'll come home, and she'll be all excited about some, something she's learned, about some new thing that impacts real estate. And I listen, pretending I'm interested. I listen to her talk about it. And, and the terminology changes, and the law changes, and what you can and can't tell a client, you know, you got to be forthcoming, but there are certain things that you don't want to touch that. You know, it's like, don't poke that bear. And it's, it's so complicated, because why? The law. 
the law. Whenever the law comes in, well, what if this happens? Well, we've got to change the law. We have to amend the law. So when we think of precise and detailed procedures when it comes to worshiping God, would it not be incumbent we know accurately what we're doing? We're more concerned about signing a piece of paper for a house or a building or whatever, a will, rather than how do we worship our God. The worship of the Lord required sacred mountains, sacred buildings, sacred priests. Think of all the high places. And again, well, we don't go to Petra anymore on our tours to Israel. We used to take folks down to Petra, but it adds a lot of complexity. But Petra, you go down there. Any of you been to Petra? If you saw the Indiana Jones movie, the first movie, where they're riding the horses in and they see this thing, you know, it's, it's carved in the stone. It used to be, it's so funny how... It's interesting how uh, people call things. They call it the treasury, the bank. And so my friend, who I've been there, I don't know, half a dozen times, he says, think about this. Why would the Nabataeans, let's say, of the people group who are there in Petra, why would they say, here's the bank? Here's where our treasury is. You would never tell people this was the front door to your bank in antiquity, right? So anyway, it's just funny. But that's where uh, Indiana Jones goes in and Sean Connery, the scene. It's not filmed there, but they filmed that scene. In the end, the four horsemen, <laughs> the four horsemen are riding away from Petra. That's Petra. By the way, after the film came out, Petra used to be a, a wadi, a dry riverbed that you walk down about two miles to go see the the city down there, which they'll never, they'll never uh, completely con complete archaeology. It's massive. Um, but you go down there and you see, after the, the movie came out, so many million tourists started going, they had to pave the road that goes down to the so-called treasury. And when you go, you will see the Indiana Jones gift shop right there. When you're <laughs> not kidding. The power of a film. Uh, why did I go to that rabbit trail? High place. When you go to Petra, and we can show you one in Megiddo too. We'll take you to a high place. High place is still there. This is where they sacrifice children. Sacred mountains, sacred priests, sacred locations, because we're consecrating you to worship Yahweh Elohim the way he designed, not the way the pagan cultures around him. God is holy, he's eternal, he's all-powerful, he's perfectly righteous, he's sovereign, he's gracious, and he's jealous. And that's a term we fumble with. God's jealousy is complicated by our view of fairness and equality and, and being politically correct. Again, don't let the culture and the language of our time teach you biblical theology. Jealousy and the way God is jealous is, look, is a complicated system to worship him. You better do it his way. He's jealous about the way you do it. The best analogy is in a marriage. I am jealous for Cindy. I don't want some guy hitting on my wife. I'm jealous for my marriage. I'm jealous for my children. So we, we often think of jealousy as a negative term. You need to put it in those, remember algebra? The, uh, when you have something inside the, the, I just lost my thread. What's it called? Absolute construction. I mean, absolute, it's, everything's positive. So when we talk about jealousy, it's a positive term. The demands for the first fruit, the first flock, the fattest, the best, uh, the unblemished. Isn't that kind of unfair? If, you're, if you were a herdsman, and you're breeding sheep, and the first male sheep that comes, the lamb is born. I mean, it's beautiful. It's perfect. It's fully formed. It's got, you know, it's an AKC registered lamb. I mean, and you see this, you're like, I got to kill that one and give it to God. 
the first crop, you're waiting, is there enough rain? Are we going to have frost? Are we going to deal with insects? The first crop, I got to give the first 10% to God. What is he teaching Israel? I often say about giving, it's an act of worship and a statement of faith. I'm going to trust God for the outcome of giving him the best one. And it's an act of worship. So he's teaching Israel, look, number one, I own all this. The reason your animals prosper, the reason your crops grow and produce is because I let them, I make them. All I'm asking you is to shepherd them and manage them and steward them. And if you want to worship me, give me the first cut so that I really understand that you understand. It's a statement of faith and an act of worship. I've told you my story, a story of my friend Dave Gibson, who's been a pastor, minister, missionary for 40 plus years, dear, dear friend of mine, just semi-retired, moved up to Boise, Idaho, Eagle, Idaho area. And um, Dave, when he was in a church, uh, they had four services on a Sunday, and he would sit on the front row, and when the offering went by, he would write four separate checks every Sunday. And uh, I would preach for him on occasion, and I, we're very good friends, so we can razz each other and love each other. You know how that works. And I would give him hard, oh, what are you showing off to your congregation that you're writing four checks every Sunday? And uh, he's the one who gave me the word dope slap when you hear me talk about easily. I don't know if you need a dope slap or if I need to encourage you. That's, that's my friend Dave Gibson. So, he, so anyways, I'm waiting for a dope slap, and he, he, he takes a breath and looks at me and goes, Michael, I don't want to go into worship empty-handed. Well, thanks for that, you know, shame. That was a dope slap, by the way, you know. And I thought, well, that's a, you know, for him individually, now to electronic transfers, I'm not saying you write a check every time you go somewhere. But my point simply is, when you worship, you give. That's the fabric of the book of Leviticus. A priest, the whole officiation of a priest is to help Israel worship God. Worship entailed sacrifice. Worship entailed giving. We think of sacrifice as losing something. You've got to erase that nomenclature. Sacrifice was giving to God what he owned. His way, and of course we're going to talk a little bit about the blood of sacrifice. Why does God demand this kind of devotion? Isn't this over the top? Isn't he a bit of an onerous God? I mean, how capricious of a God. You will give me these things. You will sacrifice. I am a holy God. The Jewish believer didn't think of it that way. The Jewish believer delighted in the system. This is again where we, and, and I blame this on the Western notion, and I mean that in broad terms, our Western way of thinking, so much of it's great, but some of the flaws in Western theology, and I mean that pejoratively, some of the flaws of Western theology are sacrifice feels bad, giving feels bad, laws feel bad. The Jew did not look at it this way. It was a festival. It was a celebration. It was a party waiting to happen. They wanted to give. Now, they may not have had much, and you know what? The law made provision. If you don't have a lot, you give a little. You give a couple of pigeons if that's all you got. The law wasn't overbearing in that sense, and the Jew was eager to comply. A holy people, a holy nation, Israel had to remember first and foremost Man was made in the image of God. Now, we've talked much about nephesh in the past. Nephesh was the Hebrew word when God breathed into Adam life. That word nephesh is a big word. Remember, he makes man out of dirt. What does he make animals out of? Same dirt. 
Hebrew word is A-D-M, Adam, Adam. It's a wordplay. You all know this. So he makes animals out of dirt. He makes man out of dirt. He breathes nephesh into all these dirt men, dirt leopards, dirt cheetahs, whatever you want to call them. What's the differentiation of man? He's made in the image of God. The others were not. So the lifeblood, when he says if you kill a person blood for blood, which was talionic, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, what we're learning in the, the whole corpus of Leviticus is you're going to take the nephesh of an animal, the life, which was the material part, the blood was the, was the ultimate material part. You're going to bleed that animal because you sinned. Now, that, again, for our Western appetite, doesn't make a lot of sense. In their system, this was a, a beautiful celebration of a guilty person going let's just say for our nomenclature, to church to get free of their guilt and burden. Did they like killing an animal? Not necessarily. It wasn't something they were eager to do, but they were eager to worship God. Redemption from slavery of your sin and condition, consecration to worship, how do we worship? Let's look at some broad uh, biblical theological foundations that the book teaches. Number one, men and women are image bearers. They are physical, earthly, but we're consigned to this fallen, difficult, broken creatures in a broken context. We will be till the end of time. Again, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Rule number one, if you're an egg, don't sit on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses, all the king's men could not put Humpty together again. The resources of a sovereign didn't have enough money or time to put the broken man back together. When Adam fell, he and she fell far. And that will be our lot until Christ returns. Secondly, men and women are spiritual beings and can communicate with God. And this, again, was very different than the world cultures. You can actually talk to God. This is one reason when we began Stonebridge, I encouraged you, we want to teach the Bible, make disciples, and teach one another how to pray. Because we're, we're friends, right? We're pathetic at praying. We're pathetic at praying. We, we have a bad theology about prayer. God doesn't answer my prayer. Prayer doesn't work. We say the same thing. You know what I'm going to tell you right now because you've heard me enough. I triple dog dare you to pray a different prayer at lunch today than you have the last 27 lunches. You're talking to the God of the universe. Why would we say the same silly thing every time? It's a relationship. And this, this is from the beginning of time. Adam and and Jesus had a conversation. Moses and Christ had a conversation. God had a conversation with his prophets. And Leviticus reminds us that you're a spiritual being and you can communicate with God. He's not some ethereal, out-of-touch, abstract, science fiction feature uh, figure that sort of, ooh, we don't really know how to communicate with him. He hears you. He knows you. He wants a relationship with you. You cannot relate to someone you can't communicate with. The Jew had to learn this just like you and me. Third, people are entirely incapable of worshiping God apart from God's work. Somehow it's in our fallen nature. In our men's meeting yesterday that Wayne was so kind to us. We had a great time. Had a great time. Wayne gave a great devotion on work and our identity of work and changing your perspective that work isn't just what you do for a living and your identity. Work is your ministry. 
work is what God's given you to do as an outworking of who you are as a believer. It was a great reminder for all of us. Um, but this, this idea that our fallen nature and fallen system, we're always trying to make the flesh better. I don't know about you. I struggle with this. I'll be 62 in a few days. I still struggle with trying to make my flesh better. You know what? You can't. You and I can't make our flesh better. But the indwelling power of Christ's spirit and our identification with Christ, we can be what? Sanctified. We can be changed. We can be transformed. And even the book of Leviticus is going to tell us you can't worship God in your own way. You're a fallen, broken, sinful person, and what you bring is fallen, broken, and not acceptable. Fourth, Yahweh Elohim is sovereign. Fifty-five times in the book of Leviticus, you're going to read some extension of I am. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord. I am holy. I am bringing you up. I am the one who sanctifies you. In fact, if you have a Bible, which I'm so proud of those young people that brought theirs, uh, flip over to um, Leviticus 19 for a second. Leviticus 19. As you're turning to the sidebar, I got to tell you, this is one of the hardest and most interesting and fun and complicated studies I've ever done, trying to distill a book in one message. It's like, okay, we got to read parts of the book. Wait, I can't, I have time. I'm so, so conflicted. So anyway, that's just for free. Um, let's just, let's actually back up to uh, chapter 18, verse 21. And this isn't the first occurrence, but this just just to show you the pattern of this phrase. 21, you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech. Again, they were so infiltrated by the Canaanite culture around them that it became syncretism and they just, you know, put one more God on the mantle. Nor shall you profane the name of your God. There it is. I am the Lord. Turn over to chapter 19 and look at how this repeats itself. Verse 2. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Verse 3, every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord, your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord, your God. On and on and on. Verse uh, 10, I am the Lord, your God. Verse 11, I am the Lord. Verse uh, 14, I am the Lord. On and on and on. 55 times you're going to read that phrase. Um, it, it strikes me every time we read about Israel making idols for themselves. I don't think it's reflexive. I don't think there's any part. I could be wrong. I haven't done super homework on this. But it seems to me, every, my recollection, every time an idol is made, it's making an idol for yourself. What a condemning statement. I'm making this for me. The exact opposite nature of worship is to worship God money sex and power the three umbrellas of life that we all struggle with when I make money sex or power my objective and my goal I've made an idol for myself money sex and power are God-given things we use for good that's why it's so hard to make the flesh better we can't and such a challenge to live in the spirit of Christ and to live cooperating with him well five Holy people will have holy places, holy objects, holy seasons, and holy rituals. And this is just a high flyover of the book again. The Sabbath, the Passover, 
again, the Passover institution is, is a wonderful thing. If you've not done a Seder meal at some point, you should do one. Get some friends together and rent a Jewish friend of yours for, you know, pay him a few bucks. One of my close Jewish friends here in town, I've, I've been trying to get him to do a Seder for me. And he goes, well, Michael, we have to talk about money first. I go, you're so typical. It's ridiculous. But I love him to death. We're good friends. Uh, but if you've not done a Seder, and I've done several Seders, and everybody has a little different, you know, spin on it. Some of them are better than others. But to go back through Exodus 12 and some of the passages and then tie it together with the, New, with the New Testament Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, it's a marvelous reminder. And by the way, they knew this stuff by heart. They knew it by heart. And this is where the Western Christian is, is typically not very astute in his or her knowledge of Scripture. Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks, later becomes, of course, known as Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2, the Feast of Trumpets. Notice there were feasts, feasts, feasts. These were celebrations. These were parties. The Day of Atonement was sad, but it was also liberating. The Feast of Tabernacles, which I call the Jewish campout. You know, when your kids are little, they, Dad, let's go camping. Let's go camping. And Dad's going, oh, gee, this is going to be a nightmare, right? This is going to be a nightmare. It's going to be cold, wet bugs, rain, snow. It's going to be hot, whatever, you know. Anybody old enough to remember soaping the outside of a pan? on a campfire no boy scouts in this room oh my word back when you actually cooked on an open fire you take your cast iron or aluminum and you soap the outside with the bar ivory soap so the soot didn't stick no no one's done this goodness gracious y'all are young um <laughs> but you always assigned the the newest cub scout to soap the soap the pot because it was a gross job and they had to clean the pot well you know what always happens they soap the inside of the pot and that beef stroganoff tastes like ivory soap, which is, you know, now we've made a memory camping, right? With rain on us, and we ended up dead cussed, and we stayed at the Holiday Inn, you know? I call the Feast of Tabernacles the Jewish campout. Because they built the booths out of banyan leaves, and they, and they lived outside, and the, the kids would love it. Moms and dad would hate it, right? But it was a big festival. These are celebrations. And then the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. If any of you have grown up around the African-American uh, spirituals, some of the songs on Jubilee have a double entendre because they look at that. That's when we were freed. That's when we were no longer slaves. One of Cindy's and my dear, dear, dear friends, African-American, he sings this year of Jubilee song and just make you weep. Because as an African-American believer, he talks about his legacy and heritage. And, and man, the year of Jubilee, I'm a slave set free. They looked forward to these like Thanksgiving, whatever your uh, Thanksgiving, Cindy's favorite holiday of the year, whatever it is. Reframe your view of the law. They loved God's law. Was it a burden at times? Yes. But that did not overweigh their love for God's law so by the New Testament the believer then has difficulty you and me understanding this law which is another good reason to spend a little time thinking through this again Dr. Ross I'm going to synthesize some of what he's written but let me give you four high level observations about the law when it comes to the church because this can be complicated people have different views on what part of the law we have to obey and this that and the other number one think of the law as the constitution of the nation of israel that's a really good way to think about it this is the constitution for the nation the people of israel god established them as a theocracy a theocracy the only thing we have close to this today is islam muhammad's the prophet whatever he said goes period 
you you are in line or you're dead or you're out or you're no longer a Muslim. Those are the options. A theocracy, a theocratic government is based on the law of God that then runs the government. America is not a theocracy. The only ones who are really today. So this is the monotheistic tension. God's holy people, God's holy nation, a kingdom of priests. So this was their constitution. Secondly, the law explained what it meant to be in communion with God. If you want to relate to him, you've got to do it his way. If you want to talk to him, you've got to do it his way. I don't know if you've ever sent a young person for a job interview to someone that might be a friend of yours. Or if you've, and we've trained our children as they were younger to go apply for a job. And sometimes it might be a friend who hires them, as, as works both ways, right? And so you tell them that when you talk to Mr. So-and-so, when you talk to Mr. So-and-so, you look them in the eye. You give them a firm hand, none of this dead fish handshake stuff. You don't mumble. You speak clearly. You say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, no, sir, no, right? This is just basic protocol. This isn't hard, but we have to learn it as we mature. The law explained how you communicate and worship God. You better do it his way. So the pedagogy, which we're going to see in a minute, the way we're taught to approach God is, is not just formalism. It's holiness. For the law regulated the purity and worship of God's people. These details were so complex when you and I read over them because we're removed by 4,000 plus years. Uh, a friend of mine uh, took his BMW engine out of his car completely, completely took it apart. I would no more attempt this, uh, and I used to be a little bit of a wrench head. I wouldn't, I mean, this, this is high technology engineering. Uh, this is complicated, expensive stuff. And he completely rebuilt his BMW engine. Now he's completely rebuilding the interior because there's some problems in the firewall between the dash and the. And I'm like, bless your heart. You're a smarter, braver man than me. If you don't do it right, it's never going to work. You can only approach God the way He designed. So while the details may seem overwhelming to a guy that doesn't know much about or gal that doesn't know much about mechanics, if you're a mechanic or an engineer, it makes perfect sense to you. It's your language. Five, the law was a tutor leading to Christ. Paul is going to refer to this in, I don't have the verse, Galatians uh, 3, 24 and 25. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Jesus, to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under its tutor. The word tutor is where we get pedagogy. Some of you were education majors, and you might have taken a course on pedagogy, the pedagogy of elementary education, the pedagogy of middle school. It's the, the way you teach. The law was that pedagogical. This is how you teach it. Well, Christ fulfills it completely, perfectly. It's not annulled. It, this heightens the whole thing, and Paul is going to put the accent on it and say, the law was a tutor. Now, here's the question. Does the law still teach? Yes. Yes. Has it been fulfilled? Yes, but it teaches us still. We still cup our ear when it's heard. Um, one of the challenges of, of church, you know, and, and you all have been in this group, there's a, we could spend a long time talking about church backgrounds and what we were taught and what we were mistaught and what we believe now versus what we didn't believe. I mean, you could pick any number of issues, drinking or smoking or, you know, uh, doing. I mean, we weren't really allowed to watch television on Sunday. Some of you might have grown up. I never saw Bonanza. 
Yeah, I was deprived. I was, I was a victim as a child. Um, I made it when reruns came out. But, um, you know, just certain things we grew up with. We couldn't work on Sabbath. You know, Steve and I couldn't mow the yard on Sunday. Dang, you know, that was a real disappointment. Um, I remember once my older brother, who is smarter than me in every respect, saying to dad, dad, we can't work on Sunday, right? Right, no work on the Sabbath. How come you do paper work? I didn't see my brother for a few days after that. <laughs> You got in a little bit of trouble for that work thing. We're, we grow up under these systems of things and we're tutored by them right, right and wrong. And yet as we come to Christ, it's this challenge of how do I understand the law of the Old Testament and what does or doesn't apply today? Let me give you some little bit of free-flowing thoughts here. Uh, number one, Christ perfectly obeys and fulfills the law, Right? That's why he's the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. John said, John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. The Paschal Passover Lamb from Exodus 12. This was the, the nephesh, the blood, the orpost and lentil. Jesus now completes that. There's no longer the need of the law. But we're talking about the law. Dear friend of mine, won't mention his name. I emailed him this week over this very issue. Went on record saying we don't need to basically study the Old Testament anymore. And I, I wrote him a personal email. I said, hey, brother, um, don't respond. No need to worry about me. I'm, I just finished reading the first 100 pages of Ross's book. We had him as a professor together. Uh, why don't you reread that? Don't have to call me back. Don't have to, nothing, whatever. He, within a minute, he said, I'll do it. Because the problem is we, we differentiate so much in our Western thinking that we don't need to. Of course, you're not going to sacrifice a goat or a lamb or do Passover or eat bitter herbs as some sort of way to God. Man's way to worship God is fallen and broken. These were placeholders. These were signposts. They weren't the ultimatum. The ultimatum was Jesus has to fill it. We hear the phrase, we're free from the law. I don't have to obey that anymore. I'm free. That's how we think of it, right? Freedom from the law means we're not guilty of it anymore. I'm free from the punishment of the law. Not free to do whatever I want. I'm free from the punishment because somebody else took the punishment. A psychologist friend of mine many, many years ago told me, he said, Michael, you have a strict conscience. Said, what do you mean? You have a strict conscience. What does that mean? If you came to a four-way stop sign at two in the morning, pitch black, no cars as far as you could see, you'd come to a complete stop. I said, of course I would. He goes, that's a strict conscience. And he laughed. Well, am I a better person because I obey the law when no one is watching? I'm making the flesh better. I'm not free to run a stop sign. I'm free from the guilt of not stopping make sense we're not free to sin licentiously we're not free to have affairs and experiment and, and steal and all these type of things we're free from the consequences this is so important guys this is so important for you to comprehend you're not free from the law in that you can do whatever you want you're free from the law because you no longer are penalized and punished because you failed does that make sense? This helped me this week as I'm reviewing it. I was very encouraged by this. Romans 6. Why don't you read with me? Can you read with me? Romans 6, beginning at verse 11. Even so, when I said read with, I meant read with. Can you do that? 
Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. When Jesus in Matthew 5 and following, and you all know this passage, these passages, I repeat them frequently and you study them, I know. When Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you study those carefully. You've heard it said, if you commit adultery. I tell you, if you look and think adultery, if I was writing the New Living Translation, I would say, you've heard it said, you think adultery, I'm telling you, if you think it, you're toast. If you think it, you're dead. If you lust or wander lust or daydream about another person, you're dead. Did Jesus fulfill the law? Yeah. Does he abrogate it? No. We're free from the consequence of the law, not free to sin licentiously. I hope that helps. And of course, 1 John 1, 9 is a verse many of us have committed to memory long ago. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is not making the flesh better. This is cooperating with God's spirit as you and I are convicted and feel shame and feel guilt. Again, we've spent a lot of energy in our culture getting rid of shame and vilifying shame and vilifying. You shouldn't feel guilty for that. You shouldn't feel ashamed. You should come out in these expressions. It's other people's fault. It's the culture. It's your parents. It's blah, 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 blah. Listen, I'm going to be one of the few voices in the wilderness saying shame and guilt can be very good. Shame and guilt can be very powerful. Not to live ashamed and as a beaten down man or woman. But shame and guilt can remind us something's going on. Maybe I need to address that. Maybe it's not blaming my mom and dad or blaming some person that really did abuse and hurt me. Maybe that's not the end game. Maybe the end game is, how do I deal with shame and guilt? I confess my sin. Confession is so easy and we make it so hard. Acknowledge to God we're sinners. Finally, and I would sum up this tension of law and church and Leviticus as sort of a bow. When, not if, when believers sin, we may confess our sin and ask forgiveness to the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. That's an obvious truth, but I need to be reminded. Not if, but when. When we sin. Confess ask forgiveness this is the marvel of the book of Leviticus these men and women of antiquity looked forward to that time they longed for that time when the burden of the law was lifted because they wanted to be free from not the law free from sin free from guilt and shame if you're here today and you don't know Christ it's the baseline he lived he died he was buried to confirm his death three days later he comes back from life he fulfilled the law. He completed it. What are we to do to have a relationship with God? We trust, we believe, we put our faith in someone to do for us what we can do for ourselves. You can never be good enough to get to God, but God was good enough to come to you and me. So by faith, I'm entrusting him 
to do for me what I cannot do for myself. If you're not settled on that, I'll talk to you afterwards. Talk to you any time about it. Not, not here to pick a fight or argue with you. But if you don't have that freedom to understand this last statement, that you're forgiven simply by asking. That's what he died for because he loves you. He cares about your eternal soul. He wants no one to perish but to have eternal life. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.